Welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you earn the mug that says world's greatest dad. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am a fellow dad. And like you, I am thinking about how to make it into my 60s and 70s in one piece, and ideally still pretty active. I am also thinking about pain, which can be a pretty complex topic. What is the worst injury? you've ever had. You can leave me a voice or a text note at dadstrength.com slash feedback. Mine would have taken place at the age of 23 or so. I was riding a motorbike through an intersection in central Taipei. I was living in Taiwan at the time. A guy ran a red light in his little Beamer and he T-boned me as I was coming through. His bumper and my bike were the bread in the sandwich and my tibia and fibula, uh, my shin, was the salami. I did a beautiful dive roll, thank you very much, through the air, and sort of skidded to a halt. Folks came and helped me off my bike. Always look for the helpers. I felt like I would be fine to stand up, and then my lower body said quite plainly, no, no you're not. And by the way, just wait until the shock wears off. I was lucky. I was on my way to tutor a group of emergency room physicians in English, and they took good care of me. They were lovely people. Uh, I managed to eventually walk out of the whole thing with just a little less range of motion in my left ankle. I would not choose to roll the dice on that one again. I think I fared pretty well. Fast forward a couple of decades and, well, plus, and I've managed to avoid anything catastrophic, but I've had pain and I've had injuries, including a herniated disc. And, um, By the way, they don't tell you this when you sign up for fatherhood, but I have taken a wildly high number of nut shots. And I say all of this to say that I have experienced pain. I have experienced injuries, and I've worked with a lot of folks who have as well. And there are some important lessons when it comes to working with them. At the top, I would say there is movement optimism. Which brings me to today's guest. Dr. Greg Lehman is a physiotherapist and chiropractor. He is also an experienced strength and conditioning coach. He looks at injuries through a biopsychosocial lens, and that means that he's just not reducing things into pure mechanics. He understands how your health overall, how your mental framework, all of these things come together to impact how you feel and how you heal. Greg is a tremendous thinker. He's able to unify a lot of research with practical knowledge and put it into a model that serves anyone who's in pain. So if you work with people who experience pain in any kind of physical setting, you should check this one out. The show notes uh, with links are available at dadstrength.substack.com. You can also go to Greg Lehman. That's Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N dot C-A, Greg Lehman dot C-A for more details. And then finally, if you have ever experienced pain at all, and especially if you are going through it now, you're going to want to listen to this interview. Let's get into it. Let's start with the idea of someone, an active person is in pain. And, you know, they've gotten the support that they're willing and able to get from a clinical provider. But there's still pain and there's still some confusion Outside of finding maybe better clinical support, what should they be doing? To me, clinical support is like you've ruled out sinister red flag type thing. You have to understand why someone has pain. It doesn't mean we know the exact cause, but you know it's not like cancer or tumor or an infection or some like 
uh, neurological disorder or something where you have to, you know, really escalate things. And once you've done that, that's great. Cause then that's when it goes back to the questions of like, what is it you want to do? Like, what are your goals? What do you, what do you expect here? And so like in the, in the strength and conditioning world, that's important too, because then like we, we can't always, it's not fair to tell people that they should be out of pain 100% of the time, right? You just have to stop doing everything or something's wrong with them and they have pain. Like I have pain every day and like, and I just train around it. And that's like such an optimistic message for a lot of people in pain that, no, you, what are your goals? What do you want to do? Okay. We can actually start doing that stuff. You don't need to like my favorite expression. You don't need to like fix yourself before you start doing things you love like that. Or, or if I'm glib, I'd be like, the fixing is actually, the doing is actually the fixing, you know, that those type of messages there. So what is, and, and maybe you want to talk about your experience, but what, what is the dance with pain? It's tough because sometimes people can dramatically recover and be pain-free. But if you've been in pain for like two or three years, it's not really, that, that might not be a reasonable expectation. It would be more you can be doing better. How do you cope with this? And what would make you happy, otherwise happy and healthy in other areas? But, but it's really not fair to like to say, oh, I'm going to cure this person. It just doesn't yeah. like, there's a map, like think of all the clients you work with, how many people have some makes and pains at some point in time. And you're not like, okay, we got to shut it down today. No, you just figure out how to work around it. Talk to me about, you know, maybe some of the mental models or constructs that we, you know, someone might have to begin, um, be more deliberate about how they work with pain and not, you know, not against it. Yeah. So it, it, there's a few different like ways to look at this. Say someone has an Achilles tendinopathy or something like that. And they're a runner and their Achilles hurts every morning really bad. And they run like 8K and it starts to flare up. You know, that's pretty normal. They, we, we, we could build them up so they can be running 12K and 15K and 18K. But it, it still wouldn't be weird to do, to do a great rehab program. And a year later, they have some pain every now and then. And their Achilles is bothering them a lot in the morning or they have to cut a run short. And, but then a few days later, they're, they're running again and they're okay. So those, that, that's something like really tissue-based. But then you might have something, someone with like persistent pain that moves around, you know, it's multi-site. They've always had this, you know, it's in their family. Like their, you know, their mom has low back pain for years. They, they started having pain when there's a when they were a teenager, you know, they're, you know, they might have sensitivities in other areas, like their stomach gets upset or sensitivity to light or some anxiety for that person. It wouldn't be fair to say like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll cure all of this. So that person, we're thinking, okay, let's rule out sinister stuff. Or someone does that, you rule out sinister stuff. And then it's like, how can we help them in what they want to do? How can we cope with that? So the, the messaging there would could be something like, uh, pain doesn't tell us a lot anymore. It, it's pretty good acutely when there's a problem. But after a while, it's just a shitty alarm that's going off that's triggered by a number of things in someone's life. And it's not really, it's not even a good stoplight anymore. You know, it's not telling us much. We, we want to respect it a little bit, but, but like my analogy is like, it gets a seat at the table, but it doesn't get to be the CEO. You know, it's not the dictator. And too often I would say we, we let it be the dictator. 
At this point, I asked Greg about the neuroscience of pain, which has undergone somewhat of a renaissance over the last several years. It's complex and it's interesting. I didn't quite expect this answer, though. I actually don't get into the neuroscience of pain. I, I don't think that's necessary. I don't get in most of the debates you hear. I'm like, all, all I know is this. is like, I just assume the tissue's involved, meaning you have some nerves that get freaking irritated because of chemicals or mechanical pressure or, or thermal, whatever it happens to be. And then that signal goes to the spinal cord and something happens there where it either gets turned up or turned down. And then, you know, something, then that goes to the brain and somehow we have pain. And like that feeling of pain that we have is influenced by everything in your life, can be influenced by everything in your life, including the, the, the tissue. And so that's it. And the, the, but the pro, and so I view pain as like, it's, it's an ecosystem where like stress, worry, health, you know, expectations, what's going on in the tissue, general inflammation, all of these things can influence how sensitive we are. So if you, if you view pain as like an ecosystem or the person's an ecosystem, to me, that can be daunting because it seems like, oh no, I have to like fix everything in my life. That's not true. The way to look at it is you have like lots of options to maybe help with your pain because so yeah. many things can influence it. And I'm going to come back to that, but I mean, yeah, it, it's, um, and, and this is what kind of one of the, the underlying premises of, of, of what dad strength is what I'm trying to do with this. And that is we have many domains, which we, you know, of health and, um, okayness in each of them is sufficient enough for a resilient system. You don't have to be, um, yeah. eating like an expert or, or, or sleeping, you know, nine hours a night in a cave. You just put out the obvious tire fires. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sleep's a good one to talk about. That's because like a lot of people just have trouble sleeping and they've been that way their whole life. And the best way to decrease someone's sleep is to tell them how important sleep is. Like, it's just, that's, we all know that how, how it works. And so if you tell someone you have to improve your sleep to get out of pain, you're just setting them up to fail. And then that in turn will increase their anxiety and stress and rumination and catastrophizing and decrease their optimism. And all of those things influence pain at all as well. So what have you done? You just mess them up. But if you say, you know what? Yeah, you can cope with poor sleep. What are the other things that you could work on right now? And then maybe it's exercise, maybe it's their diet, you know, maybe it's physical activity, maybe it's spending more time with friends, whatever, you know, and then, and then, then you, you cope with the negatives. Yeah. I like, I look for the things with the least emotional weight. Um, and like, it, we'll, like we'll, that, yeah, that they can change. You mean? Yeah. Do, do that. Like if sleeping is heavy for, if, if nutrition and often it is for people, they have a history, maybe, uh, maybe there's disordered eating or, or, or weird right. relationship with food later. There's yeah. some really easy stuff to do that has no, has no emotional weight to it. Yeah. This is the same with weight loss. Everyone says you got to lose weight for like neo way. And I'm like, most people know that <laughs> and they've been trying to do it for 20 years. How about we give them a break and work on something else until they're ready to do that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to me, okay. So this, th I'm going to give you my take on movement optimism. Okay. And you can tell me oh. if I'm landing right. And that is, so as opposed to, so to shrink a worldview is to go, you have dysfunction. This is like, you have to fix this. Um, all of a sudden 
we, we get this sort of tunnel vision on, on one issue, which, you know, there's a good chance it has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Um, and instead, we go, we ask the question of what else can you do? Yeah. What does it, what feels good? What doesn't cause pain? And all of a sudden, and even there are a million nuances in terms of a, the same exercise. How are you entering it? What's the setup? How are you breathing? How are you tensioning, torsioning the, the foot, whatever it is? And all of a sudden it sort of fractals out and they have a million options um, and ways to feel good. Yeah, that's it. Okay. All right. I dig it. No, no, I dig no, it. That, that works. It's, it's a reaction. Moving optimism is a reaction to people thinking like we're this uh, fragile, unstable stack of blocks that only has like a few like ways to move. And as soon as you deviate from ideal, which is often like neutral, whatever, uh, then you're going to pay for it later. <laughs> like, come on. And so it's not supported. That's okay. And the thing yeah, is, a, yeah. Yeah. And I don't have a problem like with people changing how people move when they're in pain. Like it's not unreasonable. If, if you have an Achilles tendinopathy and you run and you're a four foot striker, then we would say, Oh, maybe we don't four foot strike for a little bit. Genius. <laughs> and like keep them running. But the, the other way to view it is we were like, there's an ideal way to run. You got to run 180 steps per minute it has to be midfoot and your shank has to be, you know, perpendicular to the ground and your arms need to be doing this. And I'm like, no, it's just, it hurts. So we're doing it different. Easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Change some things up, try some new stuff. Yeah. And maybe, maybe the idealized version of movement that you got or mechanics that you got, maybe there's some, maybe there's some other ways to get this done. Yeah. yeah. No, agreed. Yeah. There's sort of a rogues gallery of issues or maybe injuries that gets thrown out all the time. They're just names that you hear a lot, uh, issues that you hear a lot, but aren't necessarily based in much. Could we go through those? Oh, okay. Well, oh, the cla the classic stuff. Like, why why do people yeah. think that they have pain or or injury? I, I don't know. You just got to go on Facebook to <laughs> or Instagram, right? It, it it's it's not, like nothing's really changed in forty years. People are saying the same things. You know, if if you pronate a lot, it'll cause this at the knee. It'll cause hip adduction. And now you have. I mean, you've had researchers who are writing the clinical practice guidelines, and to me, they're shoehorning in. Uh, phrases like faulty movement patterns, where someone runs and their hip drops, or they have uh, higher than average hip adduction, they're more likely to get injured, or it's a faulty pattern. And I, I hate that stuff. And I find like, the the research isn't there yet to support it. I don't doubt that sometimes if you change how someone runs when they have pain, that they're going to feel better. That that can happen. But that doesn't prove the mechanism that running with hip adduction, or something like that was faulty. Right, like we, we like you see it with squats. People are like, "Oh, the knees caved in. That's a problem." I'm like, "Why is that a problem?" They that that's how they squatted the most weight ever for them. They figured out the a solution. <laughs> or you see it when people jump, like a lot of people jump, especially women, and their knees go windward, and that's the right way for them to jump. Actually, not especially women. It, 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 lots of people do that. Uh, so it's it's odd. We just have these big assumptions. Or you see, in the ACL literature. Where people think if you go into knee abduction, so that's where like the foot looks like valgus, where the foot goes out relative to the knee, that will predispose someone to an ACL tear because it kind of looks like the injury mechanism, but it's not the injury mechanism. 
it's like someone having a beard and saying, oh, look, you got chocolate um, cake all over your face. It just looks that way. But no, it's a beard. I just haven't shaved. It's just similar. It's not the same disgusting thing. Right. So like just just because someone needs I don't know, I'll work on that analogy. Give me a break. Just because <laughs> I'll, yeah. I'll give you a more crude we'll one. workshop it. It's like it's the difference with my I do this. I've done this in a while. And of course, it's the difference between invest. OK, that word I-N-V-E-S-T and incest I-N-C-E-S-T. They're very similar, but incredibly different. Invest just looks really close to incest, but it's not. And that's the thing with someone their knee caving in a little bit when they jump. It's totally safe as long as their knee is flexed. They're not damaging the ACL, but people think that it's injurious and it's not. So that's the rogues gallery. If <laughs> don't be yeah, there are a couple couple things, and I'll I will um, I'll reserve the right to edit this out. But it's like you know there are a couple <laughs> things that sometimes when somebody comes in, they said I I saw you know we're like oh maybe you should see a, a physio or a chiro. They said oh I did, and they told me. Like if I hear VMO, I'm already mentally checked out, <laughs> but that's, that's all it takes. Like there's some, just some things that are so generic or like patel, patel femoral syndrome. Which is just kneecap on the leg bone pain syndrome. Actually there in Australia, you'll, I think the common, the accepted diagnosis now is just kneecap pain, which is what it is. Which is what it is. And yeah. it doesn't tell us anything other than your kneecap hurts. That's it. That's all that matters. Right, that's the same with low back pain. We can't be specific of what structure is causing or creating the nociception, but it doesn't matter. You can figure out what the contributors are and you work on those. Can you explain what nociception is real quick? So, so nociception would be the, the signals from the nerve, from the tissues. Like in there, these, before people call them pain receptors, but that's not exactly accurate. They're, they're nociceptors. They, they detect noxious, potentially noxious stimuli. Uh, they're like, uh, heat or some heat or cold or mechanical pressure or or chemicals, right? So they're uh, that, that they and then they go to the spinal cord and then they go to the brain and maybe you have pain. Yeah. Some people call them like danger detectors. I don't because it implies a judgment. I just call them like it's an irritation signal. The nerves irritated. That's it. And potentially there could be tissue damage. Because you're not always in danger when you have nociception, and I know that's a big debate. But I don't really, I don't care too much about it. But I know like Laura Mosley and David Butler, who are fantastic, call them danger. But I'm like, it's not always dangerous. Like I don't know why we want to tell people that nociception is dangerous. It's potentially dangerous, but not always. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know, and I don't know what the right yeah. level. Of, I want to say I want to say there's a threat, which is not. The same as a thing. Yeah. Some our our detection system picked up. You know, it's like uh, yeah. In the movie where the guy's like looking at the radar, going, "Is this?" Uh... So look at look at why it's not always a threat though, because we can change the sensitivity of the nociceptors, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So if something wasn't a threat yesterday, but I've changed the sensitivity today because of all the other things going on in my life, am I? Do I really have tissue threat? The quality of that tissue hasn't changed. My Nervous system's just more sensitized there. So it wasn't a threat yesterday, but today it is. So that's why I don't call it inherently a danger uh, detector. Yeah. It, you've changed the sensitivity. And I think it's really, this is one of those things where, where the language does, does matter a lot, I think. 
Um, and it would be nice to get this exactly right. Yeah. But I don't know. I get, I get why people say it. I just, I, but it, to be honest, I don't get caught up in those <laughs> debates. I've never even said that in public before. That's <laughs> not. I, the way I think about this stuff is, um, hey, I got this signal. Yeah. You know, and, you know, people ask us as coaches, like, should, should I be worried? Like, let, let me see if to my eye, we can do a rep even better. And better is, you know, um, might be forced production, like lots of lenses we could look at, not just some abstract idea of, of technique, right? Uh -huh. But like, if you do it better, does that, does it attenuate that signal? Great. Then we're going to use it as our, as our ally. That's just going to help shape our, it's, it's like a feedback tool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to me as a, a movement optimist, what it means in that is like, I'm not, the, the movements that I'll choose aren't predetermined by an idea of what is uh, theoretically ideal for the body. It's, I have lots of options to do it. Like when I squat, I actually like to have my spine more rounded than in more less rounded, which is kind of, most people would say, oh, no, no, it should be not like that, but it just feels better for me. I hate squatting, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. I, I uh, at some point I was like, yeah, my body doesn't love this, what I can do is I go, my depth is dictated, um, I guess by any, any change, any, any change I can feel kind of in, in lumbo pelvic position. I'm not saying, you know, and again, I know yeah. I'm not saying that this is the right way. I'm just saying for my body and my experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I feel zesty and my back is never tight or sore afterwards. Um, but it's not, it's also not my big driver anymore for adaptation. Yeah. Of all the parts in the body, why is back pain so freaky deaky? There is a big debate there. I think if you use something more often, you're more likely to feel it. That's it. Like it's not too uh, too weird. Like runners don't have a lot of shoulder pain, right? It's going to be in their knees and ankles and hips. So like we have to use our spine pretty much all all the time. And that, so it, it's more prone to sensitivity, I would assume. Uh, it's something as simple as that. And there's probably some cultural baggage around it where, uh, when it comes to just like, so we're more prone to having pain, but I think what we've done as a society is we've promoted disability with the spine. That's the difference. So there's like a difference between pain and suffering. There's some preliminary research on this where like people should just accept having low back pain. It's like the common cold. But what we've done when people have low back pain is that we've catastrophized and in a subset of people, I think it really leads to suffering. But maybe, maybe you talk about like slip discs and, sure. um, yeah. That would be the idea. So we have all the vernacular around it. Like, oh no, if you have pain now, you're going to be in a lot of trouble when you're 50, 60 or 70, you got to protect your back. The spine is really, you know, prone to instability. So I'm saying most people are fine. That, though, that type of language would, would do nothing. Other people would be like, it would freak them out. They start to protect. They're less active. They start doing less of all of the healthy things that might help their back or help them in the future. And boom, they're suffering and, and disabled, fearful. They don't move. They're guarded. They're rigid. It's not a massive percent of people, but I mean, it, it, it's only a few small percentage of people who are disabled with low back pain.
whereas a massive percent of people get low back pain, but this disability and suffering is less than that. We have a couple schools of thought on uh, what the spine can and should do. <laughs> yeah. And one yeah. is, uh, I'm just going to ask you to sort of talk about the opposing yeah. uh, viewpoints. No, I'm good. I'm good at that because I am uh, on the fence. I, this this is a case where uh, we should have disagreement because reasonable people can look at the same literature, have different backgrounds, and then come to different conclusions. So that it's it's really related to where is the spine safest, and is that in relatively neutral, where you're not bending and twisting a lot when you're lifting versus no, you can do bending and twisting and lift provided you get the dosage right, like, like anything, provided your training is smart, then, then it's safe. So we're kind of, it's, it's really the movement quality debate that there's a right way for the spine to move. Uh, and often that's more neutral. And then someone else would say, no, it doesn't matter as long as you're not an idiot about it. <laughs> Try a little thing. Yeah. See how it feels. Yeah. So Tell me a little bit about your your extracurriculars and and what I'm really interested in hearing is kind of how you think about um, the body, how you think about your body aging and 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 what that means. Yeah, so I don't like working out, and I uh, the past couple of years I've started more. Actually, I've, the past few weeks I've committed to a minimum effective dose workout. Like I don't, I have a gym at my house, but I'd rather like yesterday I was at gymnastics. You know, that's the stuff I like to do. Today I went for a run. I only run because should uh, i can start sprinting because i think that we don't sprint as we age and i need it for old man softball and then i'll strengthen but i hate it but i'm just doing it because i know that it's i can't i can't get that stimulus of that heavy load for especially in my upper body really anywhere else consistently and i know it'll help my gymnastics and trampoline and then i like to skateboard but uh that's just for i don't know why i do that <laughs> So I like to play, but I I know I'm not getting the health stimulus I need from just gymnastics, skateboarding, and all that stuff. So that's why I work out, kinda. Kinda, okay. <laughs> unpack. <laughs> I think it's just so interesting this this um, collection of things we carry around that we think we ought to be doing, um, and, and and I'm not. I'm not ultimately sure how productive any of them are, but but talk to me, un, unpack um, minimum effective dose a bit, and then talk to me about um, what you're what you're trying to do, and 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 like how you want, you know, how how old are you? Forty eight. Forty eight. Come forty six. Um, talk to me about you know you, you, your body at seventy, like you know what you, what you want to be doing, how you expect to be feeling. Yeah. So, I mean, at 70, I still want to be uh, trampolining and stuff like that. Like uh, yesterday, I was just working on standing backflips uh, and haven't done them for a few years. And that's, and that's actually that even inspired me more. That's why I have to do some heavy resistance training to get my vertical jump back up. And I need to do jump training and sprint training and more explosive stuff. I need to, I need to be more prescript, prescriptive with it rather than just doing it whenever I go to gymnastics. So that that's kind of why I strength train, and then uh, I, the, yeah, that that's the that's the the primary rationale for me to do uh, strength training. And then when I like when I go play golf and baseball, I know strength training will help for performance. That's that, that and you can do it year round. I saw your backflip. Can I as a 
yeah, it was garbage. <laughs> like I was just happy to make it around. I was thought I was going to land on my head. Uh, the, I thought the technique was nice. Yeah, you needed more uh, uh, loft. So that's the thing. Uh, you can have more loft, but you can also get more tor like flipping power and everything. Some people can do backflips. They're amazing where they the lowest backflip ever. It's super cool, like challenges like that. On the trampoline, I can do it. I can do a backflip where my head hits the ground. You just, it's, you just whip yourself back. Some people can do that on the ground. So there's other ways to cheat, but yeah, I had no, no, no power. So I'm like, I have to work on this. Here's some un unsolicited advice, which is my favorite kind of give. Um, uh, work on maybe some short cycle plyometrics, just little bounces. So that's, uh, that's my uh, daily movement snack is hopping because my calves are, I can, my calves don't feel bouncy when I run. I tore my calf <laughs> six weeks ago doing an interval session. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I am, I am, I'm actually replacing one of my jogs with a sprint bounce hop skip session. Cause if you think about it, when you get age, you never sprint. You never was skipping or hopping or jumping. You know, I, I, I come to think of, um, velocity like that as, as a skill and kind of an attitude really yeah. have you when was the last time you tried to go really really fast and like were aggressive about it in baseball and i tore both quads and my hamstring <laughs> do you do you follow uh tim gabbett's work uh i mean kind of i'm more of i'm critical of it <laughs> Tell, okay Hit me. Well, I, I, I'm critical of the uh, acute to chronic workload ratio that this is something special. Like I hate when we take something that's super simple and kind of make it complicated because the acute to chronic workload ratio is just don't do too much too soon. That's it. Like we've known this for years. Where there might be something special is he's able to track people with GPS or whatever athletes, but I don't think the con the, there's nothing special about the concept. Like no shit if you want to do a lot you have to be doing a lot before that. You know, I don't, so I don't like it when we take something. That, and so I, I always, I, I read all the papers and I'm like, there's nothing in here that is, uh, that, that we didn't do 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so sorry. I don't know. <laughs> no, but I mean, you're you're 100% right. It's like, did, did you try the thing at a, at a small dose that you uh -huh. knew you'd be safe with? Okay, add a little more. Yeah. And then, you know, and I, the way I just think about it is like, don't add so much that if you blow up, you're confused about where and where that happened. Yeah. Cause the, the model doesn't tell us like that's paper and BJSM where it's like, oh, if it's between 10 and 30% or something, they, they put that out there as if it was science and, and it hasn't like in runners, it hasn't been even validated that model to, to be able to predict or find who's more likely to get injured. So just, it, I just don't like th when things get accepted so quickly and you're like, there's nothing special here. It's just jargon that's new. This is just, don't do too much too soon. <laughs> that's it. I mean, it's our really, yeah, culturally, it's like, well, here's some things, you know, here's something that everybody, nobody would ever debate you on this. No. Right? It is not a contentious subject, but we need to translate it into um, academic or kind of scientific language so that we can say, yeah. okay, now... Now it's a thing. Yeah. And then people say, then people think they're clever and say, oh no, you didn't do too much. You were underprepared. That's the same fucking thing. Cause as soon as you say too much, it's relative to something else. So it's always is assumed that it was, <laughs> that you were doing enough before. <laughs> like, it's just, 
I don't know why we have to take such simple things and make them so complicated. Well, I think Sorry. there's sort of a, no, I, every industry and every, every profession vocation, I feel like has a, like a core of this is really important. This is why this exists. And then it has all this other stuff. That's like, this is how I justify my own existence or my own, you know, or what I charge or whatever it is. And all that stuff is really dangerous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, the, the idea behind the stuff, if, if, if Gab or someone else working in that group come up with a way to uh, know like what the actual load was on the body and it was how it was related to injury, that would be worthwhile. We had measures of like allostatic load, I guess is what you would call call it. And, and so that's what people are trying to do with HRV training, all of those things. When do you push forward? When do you back off? Uh, that, that's it. Like I use an HRV app. But I wonder, is, is, is the HRV telling me anything or is it all the uh, questions about my subjective uh, perception of how I feel? You know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was my I, response. I, yeah. It's like, uh, it's a data point. Yeah. It's a data point. And it's like, does it feel like it's in sync? Like, what's your subjective experience? What is it? What has your training load been like? What else is going on? Like, how was your sleep? What's yeah. like, what's going on relationally? Like there are all these things. And it's like, if, if it all syncs up, you go, okay, like, it, you know, great. Maybe, maybe this is giving me a picture. And if it's way out of joint with what your subjective experience is, I think that's a good, like, kind of like we're talking about pain. It's a good question, Mark. Yeah. Should I care about this? Mm -hmm. And often the answer is not really. Yeah. That's the problem. Again, I know the runner space more same with Tim Gabbett stuff and people really got onto the cute kind of workload ratio. And then, so what you would do is you'd take your run, say it was 60 minutes, and then you would multiply it by RPE or session RP rating of perceived exertion, you know, say it was three out of 10. So that'd be 180 arbitrary units of load. And I'd be like, and I've had people on our podcast debating this and, and I'm like, there's a problem with that because pain is is influenced by so many factors in our life. And in an anal analogous to that is so is effort. And so, and, and so is fatigue. And so if you're running with a group of people that you want to impress, you're going to rate that workout as probably less effortful than if you're running by yourself. Right. And so what's Great more, point. what's more injury. And if load is important for injury, you've just sort of like minimized the load that you're feeling that day and the objective load is some sort of stressor on the tissue that might have been too much for you, but it just felt good. So if you do a bunch of group runs when you're feeling run down and it makes you feel better, maybe you shouldn't have done that. So that's what I'm saying. It's potentially not accurate. Yeah. There's always like, what is the precision um, of the instrument mm -hmm. and what is our margin for error? And yeah. if it's, you know, you have to, you have to look at both. Yeah. Cause uh, and, uh, running with a group of friends, I swear I can take your rating of perceived exertion from four to two. And that's, that's a factor of two. Like you, you just cut your, like, and if your workout's 50 minutes, it just went from 200 arbitrary units to a hundred. <laughs> like that's, I, I wonder, maybe. I wonder if, not that it's, you know, particularly practical. I don't, I don't think, but I wonder if it would be more useful. Um, to look at like, you know, uh, catecholamines 
Um, because it's like, was this, was it like, I know it felt easy, but was it like, was it emotionally easy? Where yeah. did, was there, was it, was there a, like a real stress response? Um, I think someone's and, done uh, that. Oh yeah. Her last name saw this is a paper from like five years ago. She looked at like objective measures and the subjective and they correlated. Okay. But maybe there's better, but maybe, I don't know if it's catecholamines, but there might be better measures now. And that's Check what, they, again, that's what HRV is trying to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the concept is, is repeatability. Can you, great, you did it. And, and that's what I find with like go-getters and highly competitive people. They'll get it done. They, they'll get the workout done, but like at what cost? Yeah. That's why I like the research on minimum effective dose. And I like, like Steven Steeler's research on polarized training, which, which sort of values just doing the workout, but really easy is helpful. That's so, so different than what many coaches would think, especially having daughters mm -hmm. that are on three different teams. Most coaches think a workout has to be hard. And then, so all their workouts during the week are hard. So I love the minimum, you know, yeah. low intensity stuff, selling that to patients or clients, just come show up, take it easy today. Charlie Francis was saying this half a uh -huh. century ago. Your slow is too fast and your fast is too slow, right? Yeah. 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 But it's one of those things where it's like, it's so simple uh -huh. and so clear that people really struggle yeah. to, to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Like you don't, I remember when I was a strength coach in the late nineties with Laurie's basketball team, our program was based out of uh, Cincinnati. It was their program. And then there was also something called cybernetics at the time. I don't know if it's like, anyways, a lot of forced reps, a lot of forced negatives, like okay. every set or sorry. Yeah. Every set, like after the first few warmups was to failure <laughs> like for 12 weeks straight, but they're all 20. So they did fine. But that was sort of the idea at the time. Like was we, it was, they were pretty close. To, there was all, it was failure every session. Yeah. High intensity training. Um, a la like Arthur Jones and Mike Metzner ma makes the rounds yeah. every few years. And somebody just brought up the other day, body by science to me, which is the same kind of, Oh, is it? Uh, that that's, that's the more, the, the most recent version that I'm aware of. Where you're going to which failure. Which is the same thing. One set, one set to failure, go, go all out. Oh, but no other, no other sets. They do. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The high intensity training is just, is, is one set. So that is interesting because that does have, maybe if you only do one set three times, is it once a week or three times a week? I know that that didn't Schoenfeld out of that paper. Like the, the that's minimum effective dose stuff. I, I think, yeah, if you were going to, to me that told, if you're going to work out once a week, go, go all out. And, yeah, and most people just need like, like more rev. Um, however, is that, is that a sustainable pace at higher frequency? Yeah. yeah. TBD. Yeah, that's interesting. So that, that actually, that's a good one of like, of how our debates. So that's an expose or protect. When do you load? When do you back off? But there's a good one. Well, it depends. You could maybe go to failure if it's just one set and you got seven days or five days of recovery, yes. right? And so and sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. yeah, I love, I love the failure debate because I know the research is like, you don't have to go to failure. Sometimes, sometimes you overperform and not going to failure, but, but does that mean two reps in reserve or does that mean six reps in reserve? Like how, like that's where you don't, that's why I like the velocity based training. Yeah. And, be, and before we get to that, before we even get to that, sorry. And one, one of the big things, 
this went way off the rails, yeah, by yeah. the way, but I don't care. I'm, I'm, you know, this is fun. Um, you know, one of the big questions we ask, you know, you know the people we work with, we, we try to develop this as a skill is like, how good are you at predicting how many reps you do have left? Oh, yeah. How many reps do you really have in reserve? Again, it's like how, how finely tuned is that instrument versus what's our margin for error? And most people, unless they've been not only training, but training under this framework where someone's like yeah, sure. regularly checking in, they're not that great at predicting. No. Who is this course for? Anyone who's dealing with people who have some pain. That, that that's that's how the course is set up it's not you're not expected like there's not a lot of manual therapy there is if people want to talk about it but it's just showing that it's an option but you can do the almost same thing without putting your hands on people so it's not specific to any any therapist it's just pe people with pain who, who primarily practice with like a movement-based practice or talk to their patients or their clients <laughs> so if you talk to your clients this works uh it's, it's sorry and then what, what was the other question like oh what are you gonna just learn yeah, like, uh, again, the, my thrust is like, what are the common threads? What's the mediators of recovery? What are we really doing to help people? And once, and once we start thinking of like, how did this person get from here and lots of pain to over here, less pain and doing better? Like, what is it that changed about them? Then we start seeing like, what are the other things that I could add in my, in working with people in pain? Uh, what are the skills that I might want to develop? But but it's really, it's solidifying. Like, I also want people to feel like they know more than they think they know. Because I think a lot of the continuing education space is like, oh, you don't know anything. You got to learn this secret trick. And I, I kind of want to deflate a lot of that stuff. That's always been my favorite through the years. Like, I'm not saying don't do those secret tricks. I'm just saying you don't have to. There's nothing special about the, 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 those tricks. So it's a lot of simplifying as well. Which is so hard because like, that's why I write a lot of blogs is you have to go through a lot of the complexity of the research in order to say, don't worry about it. You know what I mean? Like that, you see most practitioners in most fields who have done that, like you've had, like you, you realize it's simpler, you know, 15 years into your career. I'm on a speed. Yeah, you have people. to, you kind of have to go through it, but. You also have to let it go. Yeah. And I, I yeah, that's it. And it, it's, it's accepting that it's all right to be simple. Like it's like the Tim Gavitt stuff too much too soon. Got it. Okay. Don't do too much too soon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you really <laughs> have to know. Uh, this was fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. Did we get into the weeds on that one? Yeah, we did. Uh, I hope it wasn't too inside baseball for you if you're not in the strength and conditioning or rehab world. If you have questions about anything we mentioned, just drop me a line at uh, dadstrength.com slash feedback. I will tell you what we were talking about or send you links to any research studies that I don't happen to include in the show notes. Big thanks to Dr. Greg Lehman for a fun and wide-ranging chat. His course will be hosted at my place, Bang Personal Training in Toronto, this December. Thanks for hanging out with us today. I hope it leaves you feeling like more of a movement optimist. We'll see you next time.